0: With that, um, Notice in your bulletin, especially if you're a guest with us, on the back is an outline for the lesson. We are also starting a new series of lesson about impact. Because in the gospel, what you find is that when people had an interaction with Jesus, they were impacted. Couldn't help but be impacted. Most of them in a very positive way. Some of them denied Him or didn't want to believe Him. But they were impacted by this one we call Jesus. And after that moment, everything was different. And sometimes the result is not what you would think was coming. I want to begin by telling you a story of a cab driver. He was uh, on the side of the road, and a passenger got into the cab, and the passenger was hungry, the rider. And, and he thought, I don't know where to eat, so he thought, I'll ask the cab driver, because he'll know all the good places. So he reached up to tap the t- cab driver on the shoulder, and the cab driver just screamed, and, and pushed the accelerator, went up onto the curb and crashed into the building. Glass went everywhere. And for the next couple of seconds, all you could hear was the heartbeat of these two men. And the driver said, you scared me to death. And, and the passenger, you know, the, the, the rider said, well, I'm sorry. I didn't realize touch you on the shoulder would have done that. And he says, well, I understand that. But you need to understand that this is my first day driving a cab. For the last 20 years, I've been driving a hearse. We all know that when something seems dead, it's time to give up hope. But that's the exact point Jesus challenged one dad to rethink. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. That's going to be our text today. You may want to follow along in your own Bible. It'll also be on the screen, and you can follow along that way. Look what Mark writes in Mark chapter 5, beginning of verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now, this is quite unusual for a prominent Jewish leader to humble himself before Jesus. Because that's usually not what you find them doing. They didn't like Jesus. They didn't know what to make of Jesus. They were threatened by Jesus. So what would make this synagogue ruler, this leader of the synagogue, this prominent leader, humble himself before Jesus? Fell at his feet, it says. Why would he do that? Because being a dad trumps any job or title. Parents, you know, I can only imagine what it feels like your child is sick and at this point dying every father of a daughter can understand that sense of desperation i'm not sure what to make of this jesus but if he can heal her i'm gonna ask but can you imagine his exasperation with what happens next in the story mark records in verse 24 this large crowd was following there so much so that people were pushing around all around jesus remember jesus asked the question who touched me Remember the backstory of what's going on that this woman who had this this issue of blood for 12 years? She thought to herself, if I could just get close enough to touch him. And I wonder what that must have been like, this crowd. I imagine it, this crowd gathering around him, being like going to a sporting event. You ever been going to one of those where you're trying to get in for the best seat? And people are everywhere, and you're shoulder to shoulder, maybe even hanging on to the person in front of you so you don't get separated. Or maybe if you shop on Black Friday and you're just outside the door when they open, You know what it's like. You're just right in there. There's no such thing as personal space. And so for anybody to ask, who touched me? You're thinking, that's a silly question. Why would you ask that? But that's what Jesus asked. Because this lady, Mark says, had spent all of her money on doctors, and they couldn't help. Now, Luke's account, he doesn't share that detail, but he's a doctor, and so you can kind of draw your own conclusions there. But Jairus had to wonder why a woman who had been ill for 12 years, had to stop Jesus right then and there when his daughter is dying. He's on the way to his house. His daughter is dying. Couldn't you have waited one more day or just a few more hours? Jairus was worried it might be too late for Jesus. And his concern would soon be his test. Look at verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? This had to be such a blow. What he didn't want to hear. Not only was it the news that your daughter is dead, he wasn't even there. Wouldn't any father want to be there holding your daughter at her last moment? He didn't even get, to, he didn't even get that. Could it get any more hopeless for a dad? Look in verse 36. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid. Just believe. But how could he not be afraid? On the other hand, how could he forget what he just witnessed? How Jesus had impacted this very hopeless situation for this woman. So he had to make a decision. Do I look to the the obvious here and give up because it's too late? Why bother the teacher? He's dead. Or do I keep walking with this guy who tells me, don't be afraid? Just believe. And that's exactly the same decision that we must make. Which voice will you listen to? There's two voices. There's two voices that he heard, and there's two voices that we hear. One voice says, why bother? So the question is, when you think of that question, why bother? Is there some part of your life where you're tempted just to give up hope? To quit trying, to just... Accept the status quo and decide it's too late. For some of you, maybe it's a marriage and you're thinking, you know, why go to marriage counseling? Why read a book? Why go to a marriage retreat that's happening at church? Why bother? Or maybe it's finances. You're not bankrupt, but things are not good either. Do I really need budget counseling or help? Why bother? Maybe it's fitness. Maybe you need to get healthy. Maybe to eat better. Maybe you need to exercise. And the excuses jump in. But my knee and my arthritis... And we hear that voice, why bother? What about that secret sin? I told God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. A hundred times, a thousand times. But I keep going down. Why bother? Maybe it's about staying pure sexually. And you think, but I've already crossed the line. You can't unscramble that egg. So why bother? Maybe it's getting free of an addiction. Maybe it's seeking reconciliation with your family or somebody else. Can I admit that sometimes I hear this voice about ministry? I hear the voice of why bother moments of discouragement when I wonder, is there something else? I love what I do. I love ministry. I feel called by God to do this, but I teach and I teach and I preach and I preach and sometimes I wonder, is anybody listening? Is it making a difference at all? Especially when I hear petty complaints from people about things that are so trivial and I just got not listen to somebody who's got a real problem, you might say. I want to say, is it worth it? Why bother? You've been there. The voice can come from the crowd. It can come from those closest to us at work. Or maybe your family, the people you live with. Sometimes it comes from our own head. We've all done our share of tying God's hands of burying God, of deciding it's too late. Remember the women who went to the tomb after that first, that first Sunday after the resurrection? They weren't expecting a miracle. They'd already decided it was too late. You remember that? We act as if Jesus can have no impact, but we can listen to another voice. And that voice is the voice of Jesus that says, don't be afraid, just believe. Just believe. I came across this quote. I want to share it with you. Unbelief puts circumstances between us and Jesus. Unbelief puts circumstances between us and Jesus. But belief puts Jesus between us and circumstances. Jesus is telling you, don't listen to them. Trust me. Believe me. Follow me. And Jesus knew What Jairus had just heard was true. His daughter was dead. That's true. But Jesus also knew it wasn't the final word. And that's because what we call the irreversible, Jesus sees as an opportunity. It's a moment. It's not the end. For Jesus, it's the next chapter. We think it's the end, but it's not the end. Jesus knew He could conquer demons. He could conquer uh, disease, disappointment, even death because He came To conquer sin. And He did all of that. But we look around and we know this world is helpless. This world is hopeless. This world is dark. It's doomed. But God didn't make it that way. That's not God's fault. We made it that way. This is our doing. And God could have easily looked at all of us and said, why bother? To look at humanity who turned their hearts and their minds and their desires away from Him. And God could have said, Forget it. Why bother? But God did bother. So much so that He sent His Son to take care of our mess, our sins, our broken promises, our, I'll never do that again, God, and then we do it again. He came for all of that. And Jesus became flesh and and lived a sinless life and died for us and went to the cross for us and to take our sin and our iniquity. And He offered us in exchange His purity and His holiness. So when the God the Father looks at you, His child, He doesn't see your sin in His past. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. He sees you as holy, as pure. And I know as we hear that we can't help but think that's too good to be true. But it is true. That is the truth of the gospel. And the voice of Jesus would tell us today, just believe. Romans 4.25 to me just summarizes this so well. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. The New Living Translation renders that last part to make us right with God. That's what justification is. To make us right with God. The scoreboard no longer reads, death wins. In fact, death loses because Jesus won. And if you see that, it impacts everything. It impacts the way you see everything. John Lennox is an author and professor of mathematics at Oxford University. And once he was touring in Eastern Europe, and he met a Jewish woman from South Africa who was also there at this particular tour she was researching about her parents and her ancestors who died at the Nazi concentration camp. And they were there at this mock-up that had there at the main gate and they had these pictures there of the horrific medical experiments that were carried out on children by Dr. Joseph Mengele. And at this point in this tour, this Jewish woman turned to Lenin and said, and what does your religion make of that? What does your religion make of that? Let me share what he writes. What was I to say? She had lost her parents and many relatives in the Holocaust. I could scarcely bear to look at the Mangalay photographs because of the sheer horror of imagining my children suffering such a fate. I had nothing in my life that remotely paralleled the horror her family had endured. But she stood in the doorway waiting for an answer. I eventually said, I would not insult your memory of your parents by offering you simplistic answers to your question. What's more, I have young children and I cannot even bear to think how I might react if anything were to happen to them, even if it were far short of the evil that Mengele did. I have no easy answers, but I do have at least what I think is a doorway to an answer. What is it, she said? You know that I'm a Christian. That means I believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. I also believe that He was God incarnate, coming to our world as Savior, which is what His name Yeshua means. Now I know this is even more difficult for you to accept. Nevertheless, just think about this question. If Yeshua was really God, and I believe He was, what was God doing on the cross? Could it be that God begins just here to meet our heartbreaks? By demonstrating that He did not remain distant from our human suffering, but became part of it Himself? For me, this is the beginning of hope. And it's a living hope that cannot be smashed by the enemy of death. The story does not end in the darkness of the cross. Yeshua conquered death. He rose from the dead. And one day, as final judge, He will assess everything in absolute fairness, righteousness, and mercy. And she stood there in silence with the tear going down her cheek, said, Why has no one ever told me about my Messiah? Why has no one ever told me about my Messiah? See, the impact of a collision with Jesus should be this wave of hope, this infusion of hope that forever changes everything. The resurrection is not a, a holiday that we just celebrate once a year. It is a reality, a daily reality that impacts our every being. It turns a why bother into why settle for the way things are. So you have to decide which voice is going to have the biggest impact on you right now. You are being impacted. And these are competing voices, these contrasting messages. So you've got two choices. Two choices, really. You can choose first to tune out the doubters, to be full of hope when no one else is full of hope. But to do that, sometimes you have to empty the room. Notice that's what he does here. Mark 5, verse 38. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. Bad idea. They shouldn't have laughed at him because look what he does. Look how he responds in verse 40. After he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. After he put them out, first thing he did was clear the room. I find it interesting that the New Living Translation renders that he made them all leave. The New Century Version says, after throwing them out of the house. I think that's accurate. This is the same term, Made them leave, empty the room, throw them out, however we translate. Same word that's used by Jesus when he cast demons out. So this is not a physician coming in as we've been there many times, maybe in the intensive care, when the physician comes in and says, uh, Family, we're going to have to ask you to leave for just a few moments. We've got to do something. No. This was cleaning house kind of moment. He got everybody out of there. It's not productive to repeat the words of fear and doubt. So maybe you and I need to clear the room. You can't silence all the negativity because we live in a world that still laughs at Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, if you try to live like Jesus and love like Jesus and follow Jesus, people are not going to understand you. And they're going to laugh at you, and you cannot silence them, but you can decide to not let all that negativity take up resonance in your mind. Think about Jesus' track record. Maybe, maybe this woman who had this issue for all these years, maybe God orchestrated her to come into this moment on the way to Jairus' house so that Jairus could see this miracle so that he could believe there was one for him. Maybe God was using her to open His eyes. So maybe you and I need to be reminded, what are some other people that have been impacted by Jesus? Somebody's marriage who was saved and did improve. Or maybe the one who got off drugs or the family that was reconciled or the one who who finally went beyond that besetting sin. Think about all the people you know who've been impacted by Jesus when everything seemed hopeless. And give Jesus' words your full decision and make your full attention and make the decision To clear the room. To silence the naysayers. Luke says it was Peter, James, and John and the mom and dad that were allowed to go in. So then you can turn in the hope direction. So you can turn in the hope direction. The real problem is not the presence of trials. It's the absence of hope. You know that. Maybe that's why Jesus' first words after the resurrection were do not be afraid hope changes everything hope changes the way you see a situation it changes how you listen hope changes everything i love the story about the four widows who were at a retirement home and they were in the foyer playing cards when they noticed all four of them this distinguished looking gentleman come in and was standing at the front counter the first widow asked him um may i ask you what are you doing here and he said, "Sure, I'm, I'm hoping to move here." So the second widow popped in and says, well, "Where are you from?" He said, "Well, the last 25 years I've been in prison." Well, the third widow said, "Well, may I ask why?" He said, "Well, to be honest, for murdering my wife." And the fourth widow said, "So are we to take that that you're single and available?" <laughs> Hope changes everything. But let's not be naive. Evil has its moments, sometimes seasons. But I'm saying it doesn't have the last word. The God we worship raises the dead, and that gives us leverage over anything we're going through. And that hope may result in deliverance, that hope may result in renewed strength, it may give us courage. And patience to endure and to be steadfast, but it always results in a refusal to accept the status quo and to give up. Author Jim Collins, in his book, Good to Great, tells about Admiral James Stockdale, who survived as a POW in the Vietnam War. Eight years. Eight years. And he was asked by Collins, how did you do it? And here was his reply, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, listen to this, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into a defining event in my life in which in retrospect, I would not trade. That's an amazing perspective. Collins then asked him, well, who didn't survive? Who didn't make it out? And Admiral Stockdale said, that's easy. The optimist's. He said, the optimists, they were the ones who said, we're going to get out by Christmas. But Christmas would come and go. And then they'd say, we're going to get out by Easter. And Easter would come and go. We're going to get out by Thanksgiving. And then it'd be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. Real courage embraces the twin realities of the current difficulty and the ultimate triumph. It's not naive. naive. It's not Pollyanna. You're not just saying empty. it's going to be okay. Sometimes in your middle of something, it's not okay. So real courage embraces those realities, both of them. There are times when life stinks. When it's horrible. When you don't want to get up in the morning and you don't want tomorrow to come because it's going to be a repeat of today. There are times when that happens, but it won't be forever. I don't know who said this but I think it's so true. Everything will work out in the end. If it's not working out, then it's not the end. Isn't that great? People who have hope have an eternal perspective, even in the darkest moments, because they know the one who raised the dead. For them, it's easy as a dad awakening his little girl from a nap. Look back in the text, verse 41. Jesus took her by the hand, and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. This story is your story. This story is my story. This story resonates because it's a foretaste of what Jesus can do for all of us. Our hope is real, and one day it's going to be fully realized. So here's the last point, the conclusion. Get used to getting up. That's what he told her to do. Get up. But what we're used to is excuses. I fell down. I know that. Everybody knows that. Get up. I'm tired. Yes, you're tired. Get up. Get used to getting up. Jesus, here's what we know about this situation. Jesus could have healed her from a mile away, from miles away. He didn't have to go to the house. Remember, there's times where he would just speak the truth, speak it, and make it happen. But he did go to the house. He wanted to go to the house. He went to the house. He went into the room. Mark says he took her by the hand. I want you to notice this. The first touch she felt, the first voice she heard, the first face she saw was Jesus. We read this story and we so empathize with her mom and her dad, don't we? What it must have been like to have been so desperate and then so defeated when she finally died and then for Jesus to come in and to clear the room. But you're one of those few that was in there. And we think of the reunion, but it wasn't just about the reunion of all of them. First, it was Jesus. The first touch she felt. The first voice she heard. The first face she saw. Do you realize that's going to be You? when it's our time to go, His will be the first voice you hear and the first face you see. Yes, it'll be a great reunion of all those who've gone before us, but it's first going to be about Him. And the hope of that day impacts every day. Death has surrendered to Jesus. And I hope you will too. Jesus came to give you eternal life. And we're going to stand and sing a song to encourage you to claim that life, to confess that you believe that He is the Son of God, and as you confess, let Him make you clean as He washes you in baptism, to give you His Spirit to live in you so that you can walk daily with Him with a hope that forever impacts everything. If you need to come, won't you do so while we stand and sing?